this week on The Perfect Scam. I mean, just the depth of the kinds of fraud. This is like they were running a like a big mega mall of fraud or something. I think network is the better word. It's it's just crazy. It's like this whole fraud ecosystem. There's all kinds of different types and just the sheer number of people that are involved is staggering. There's so many people that it takes to make these schemes work. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. Today we're taking you to a small pastoral college town in western West Virginia. So far west, it's right on the Kentucky border. When the leaves turn in the fall, you can imagine why someone would call it almost heaven. Huntington, West Virginia is famous as the home of Marshall University, which in the 1970s suffered one of the saddest disasters in the history of U.S. sports. A charter flight crashed, killing most of the school's football team back then. A great movie, We Are Marshall, starring Matthew McConaughey, tells that story. Huntington has suffered other tragedies, too. It's been called the epicenter of America's opioid addiction crisis. Still, it's a pretty small community of 50,000 that you might never expect to be the epicenter of a massive international internet crime ring. But as we'll learn today, however small and quiet your community, the same thing could be happening where you live. Huntington, West Virginia is a a college town. It's where Marshall University is located at. It sits on the banks of the Ohio River. If you've ever watched the movie We Are Marshall, it's featured prominently in that. It's very close, a border city. It borders both Ohio and Kentucky within three to four miles. That's William Thompson, a federal prosecutor based in nearby Charleston, West Virginia. It's a really cute town. It's a college town. So there's a lot of good restaurants there. And then it's pretty lively. Unfortunately, Huntington's also been struggling with the opioid crisis a lot during recent years. It's one of the towns that you always hear about when you hear about, you know, so many overdoses and such. So it's working on that. But You know, the community is really banded together, and there's definitely a sense of community there. But something curious was happening in Huntington for the past few years, and, well, it's a good thing Katie Robeson, also a federal prosecutor based in Charleston, is on the job. I've been with the DOJ since 2016. I started at the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery section, and I became an assistant United States attorney in 2019. What drew you to this kind of work? Well, my dad was in law enforcement. I guess I grew up around it and I always, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I always wanted to be a prosecutor and hopefully bring good cases and try to bring some justice to the world in my own small way. So Katie hadn't been with the DOJ very long when something pretty remarkable crosses her desk. Well, there was a bank report. It started like right after I just got to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had learned that there was a woman in Huntington, West Virginia, who had received millions and millions of dollars in her bank account from people. There were so many people all around the world, all throughout the United States. They had all been sending deposits to this one woman. We went back through the bank records and we found out that this woman had been sending millions of dollars to Nigeria. What did it feel like to find out that there was a woman in Huntington who who had millions of dollars going in and out of her account? I was really shocked. The first person who found out was an investigator in our office. So he pretty much bolted over, told me, and we were just like, oh my gosh. 
And so I actually had to call someone back in D.C. to say, like, what do I do? Millions and millions of dollars moving in and out of this one woman's bank account, at least some of it, ultimately headed to Nigeria. So Katie and her team start investigating, first through bank records and then through interviews. So we saw where a lot of the money went to, but then also we started talking to the people that were sending her money. And then from there, you learn that these people are sending this woman money because they believe they're sending it in her care to give to someone that they think they're in a relationship with or friends with that they met online. And then they start telling you about other people that they've sent money to to get to their the person they think is their romantic partner or friend or so on. And that's when we learned about this group of young men in Huntington who were also laundering these fraud funds. This group of young men who were also laundering funds from Huntington. So somehow, criminals were talking to people all around the country, lying to them, seducing them, persuading them to send money to lovers or to people in need. But that money really went to this woman in town and then to a small group of young men, a crime ring, based in Huntington. The stories the criminals told to the victims to get them to send money ran the gamut. They'll develop this whole fake persona. For example, one person pretended he was a man named Martin Fahm. He says that he's working overseas. I think he may have been some engineer that was working on a boat. Often people will say they're an oil rig worker. They'll come up with some reason why they don't have access to U.S. bank accounts that can sound, you know, somewhat plausible before they start asking the victims to send them money. And they'll start asking for small amounts of money at first, usually something that really, you know, maybe if you know someone, you don't mind sending that much at first. And then over time, as they keep talking to these victims and the victims think that they're in this loving relationship with these fake identities, they'll start asking for more and more money. And that's when it starts, you know, really accumulating. The stories are remarkable. And some of them involve things like uh, fan clubs for famous people, right? Oh, yes, exactly. I think there was one for Blake Shelton. And, you know, it was, she thought she was paying this money so that she could meet Blake Shelton. And then it would just keep increasing, increasing, increasing. And then at some point, you know, the victim learned, oh, this is not, real this money is not actually going to Blake Shelton or his fan club. And during COVID, this team of thieves even figures out how to profit from that. The victims will sometimes share their own banking information with the members of the fraud scheme. And the people in the fraud scheme will apply for SBA loans or other types of loans, like a lot of the pandemic relief stuff in the victims' names. And they'll make up these fake businesses that need the loans for whatever fake reason. They'll get the money deposited into the victim's accounts. And then because the people in the fraud scheme already have access to these accounts because the victim shared it with them, you know, they just take the money out of the account and move it to themselves. But when law enforcement is trying to find out who sent this false application and got all this pandemic assistance that they weren't entitled to, the first person they're going to come to is the victim. So it can be it can be really hard investigating these. The, I mean, just the depth of the, the kinds of fraud. This is like they were running a like a big mega mall of fraud or something. Oh, for sure. Um, it's really, I think network is the better word. It's, it's just crazy. It's like this whole fraud ecosystem. There's all kinds of different types and you have just the sheer number of people that are involved is 
staggering. There's so many people that it takes to make these schemes work. The key to making the schemes work is to find a way to move money out of the United States that doesn't arouse suspicion. That's where money mules come in. So sometimes the victims will send money to somebody like the first woman we talked about. And the first woman, she might send money after she gets these victims' money. She might send it directly overseas. She might be so brave as to do that. A lot of times, though, this people like the first the first link in the chain almost, the first woman, she'll send it to someone else located in the United States, someone like our young men in Huntington. And then they will get money from lots of other different people like the first woman. First layer money mules is a term that we used. They collect this money in their account, and then they transfer it maybe to other people located in the United States, people in bigger cities like Chicago or New York and so on, or they'll just go ahead and transfer it straight to countries overseas like Ghana or Nigeria. And it's all this whole time, though, they're taking out some of the money that's transferred because that's their their commission, their cut of being involved in this fraud scheme. And that's why the scheme is able to keep going and going and going. So why Huntington? Well, as a small college town, that makes it an ideal place to find money mules, particularly for criminals trying to move money overseas. Foreign nationals who had come over here on student visas, and that was very important because it did not raise as many red flags to banks that these people were getting these transactions and then sending the money and they were all from different countries in Africa to the countries in Africa since they are from these countries originally. And so, you know, their role was important in letting the scheme go on undetected for so long. That makes a lot of sense. I never thought about that. But yeah, so it would, would be natural for them to be sending money home, right? Exactly. And are they cutting it up into smaller lots so it raises less suspicion? Yeah, yeah, they are. That That's an important part. So sometimes, for example, you might have a victim and your victim thinks she's sending money to people that the money's going to go to her boyfriend and she wants to send, you know, $20,000. So instead of sending $20,000 to one person to help lower suspicion in banks, because, you know, they're looking out for these transfers that might be a little bit suspicious, she'll send it $5,000 to four different people. And these four different people all might be working together. And then they might all send it to one person that they're working with. That person will put the $20,000 and then use one of the online currency, or they might send it in smaller chunks to others located in the U.S. And it, it really just depends. And they try to vary it as to keep from drawing suspicion and also to conceal the different transactions and to add layers to the transaction. So it's harder for law enforcement to keep moving up the criminal pyramid and find people who are ultimately responsible for creating these fake identities. I'm surprised to know that there are you know, regionally based crime groups in the U.S. committing this kind of fraud. Yes, we do think that. And it's not And sometimes the people, our group just happen to all live in Huntington and they happen to all know each other. They were friends socially. But sometimes, you know, you don't all live by each other. So maybe you live in Huntington and you're working with someone who lives in Texas or Tennessee or whatnot. But it is just the organization that goes into this. I think if more people knew how organized they were, it would really be shocking. 
Remember, Katie is new to her job, and she works in West Virginia. She does not expect to be hunting after an international crime ring in a nearby college town. It takes Katie and her fellow investigators a while to track down the principal players, all the while keeping that investigation quiet so none of the suspects gets tipped off. But within a few months, the big day comes. Takedown day. What was the big break in the case? Oh gosh, um, I don't. It was, I don't know if there was a one moment I would say. Besides, once we first found out about it, it would probably be once we we had talked. We interviewed a lot of victims. Um, there are so many victims involved in this case, and so and we saw a lot of the bank records. And we finally got to a point where we thought we could get an indictment and charge a group of individuals. And so we did. So the biggest thing probably was in law enforcement, we call it takedown day after indictment when you go and arrest everybody and maybe you search their houses or seize, you know, assets if you can. And so that was probably the biggest day in the case because that was the first time we really saw a lot of them face to face and they got interviewed and people, some of the co-conspirators started cooperating. I'm sure there's an awful lot of preparation for that. Oh my God. Yes, it was. So we had, I think they were, I can't remember how many states they were located, but it was more than five because they were all spread out by this time. So we had prepared teams where someone went to, one was living in Virginia. Someone went to Virginia. One had moved to a different part of West Virginia. So one was, you know, fairly local here. One was still in Huntington. One was in Georgia. Somebody else was in South Dakota, Mm. you know? And so there's just so much planning and preparation with everyone to make sure that everybody's getting arrested around the same time so that they can't call each other, tip off people. But you also have to coordinate this so that everyone, you know, can remain safe and carry out these arrests in a safe manner. We also had one defendant who we just couldn't find at first, you know, because like you don't think about this when you if unless you do it all the time, but like you have to physically find these people to arrest them. And he he just moved a lot. So it was very hard to find him. And we finally did find him about a week later because we got a it's called a ping warrant for his phone and we were able to track his phone and see where he went. And then finally and the Secret Service agent at the time, I I was not thrilled when I first found this out, but he just sent him a text saying, We have a warrant for your arrestor, you know, please give us a call. And then, so we were finally able, he got a lawyer and then came to Huntington and get him arrested and processed and carried on the case. <laughs> you know, on TV, I'm picturing somebody kicking in a door, but they just texted him and said, hey, you're, we're going to arrest you. Come on in. That's funny. Yes. Ultimately, on takedown day, nine suspects are indicted, ranging from age 23 to age 30. And they're arrested for participating in this elaborate set of internet-based crimes the one-on-one interviews are illuminating. So I was here. I stayed in Charleston while all this was going on and the agents were doing all the interviews and arrests. And then they would call and do updates. And after they came for their initial appearances, the people who wanted to cooperate, that's when we started meeting. And we hold these things called debriefings. And that's when, you know, if they want to cooperate, they would tell us the information that they know. And also some of them told us just how these fraud schemes work and how prevalent they are and the organization that goes into them. I'm picturing at least some of these are college kids far away from home who 
you know, uh, maybe got caught up in something. Uh, I mean, what, what kind of feeling did you get when you talked to them? Yeah, some of them were, and some of them, a couple of them were a little bit older and maybe not as naive, but it was, it was definitely interesting because on one point, you know, like they're humans too. You want them to make good choices and do right things. But on the other point, just the sheer numbers that they would talk about and the amount of numbers is just staggering, you know, and at some point you're like, how can you keep doing this and engaging in this with all this money? How could they keep doing it? Well, in some cases, these students studying far from home, they feel intense pressure from home. College students, it turns out, make excellent money mules, even if they don't necessarily want to do the job. Did any of them you know, get emotional during your conversations? Yes. Um, one of them in particular got very upset because the other thing that we just don't think about is there's a lot of pressure to join these schemes because if you've left home, you know, you're in the U.S., but a lot of your family members are back in Nigeria or Ghana. And in Nigeria in particular, there's a real gang problem. And a lot of the gangs are also involved in these fraud schemes. And so they can threaten people to like use their bank accounts or it's, it's not normally threaten them to join, but if you realize what's going on and you want to leave at some point, it's hard to leave these schemes because your relatives at home could possibly be endangered. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that's, that's kind of terrifying. It, it really mm. is. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. With the suspects rounded up and the initial debriefings underway, the case lands on the desk of William Thompson. A longtime circuit court judge, he has just started the job as a U.S. attorney running the Southern District of West Virginia. First I heard about it was I was briefed on it both by my first assistant U.S. attorney as well as Ms. Robinson, as well as some of the investigators, some of whom I knew from my state court experience. Basically give me an overview of how this, it was a romance type scam, how it worked, who the players were, and what the next steps in both the investigation as well as the uh, litigation that was to follow. What seemed remarkable about it was that the sheer size of it, the geographic outreach, this wasn't a crime that was just limited to the Southern District of West Virginia or to Huntington it had a nationwide effects. Plus, there was a lot of international aspects to it as well, because a lot of the money ended up in countries in Africa. A lot of people at this point have heard of Internet crimes, have heard of romance scams. Uh, you know, they might even know that, you know, many of these criminals ultimately are overseas in places like Africa. I think they'd be really surprised to find out that Huntington, West Virginia was a, a center for this kind of international crime. Were you surprised? I was. I was very surprised. And like I said, a lot of the perpetrators were international students come up, some of them who had ties to Marshall University. Unfortunately, they were taking advantage of those skills to perpetrate these frauds. 
So the investigation and prosecution are both unusual. We had one that cooperated very quickly when uh, he was first approached. Got to meet with him. He's what led us to a lot of the people that were involved. But he was. And like the other money mules involved, he generally got to keep a big cut, perhaps 20% of the money he laundered. I think he downplayed it a little bit that he was caught up. I think he knew what he was doing, obviously. There was some pressure from his home country, from criminals there, putting some pressure on him to get to do this. But he also did this for one of the most basic human desires, and that was greed. He profited off doing this. He was making money while he was committing this crime. So just to put a fine point on it, this, the folks who were arrested, the folks who were in Huntington, were they engaging in the actual phone calls and romance scams or were they just transferring money or what was their precise role? They were both. Some of them were actually engaging in the actual online persona, but most of them were people who were moving the money around. And it was because they had access to U.S. banks and could open up bank accounts. And my understanding is that because these were international students from these countries, that made the transactions look a little less suspicious, right? Yes. I mean, nobody was really going to question the fact that somebody that was an international student is sending money back to their home city or home country. I mean, you would expect that. I mean, I've got a kid in college right now, and if you look at my bank account, money gets transferred to him. You know, it just happens. Somebody could come here and be an international student and take a job and would be sending some money back. Now, the money actually became quite large. That's actually one of the reasons that we became aware of it was by the amounts of the money. It was money that was not something that a college student will be sending back to their family. Both Katie and William, you can probably tell, listening to them, have a pretty even-handed view of the co-conspirators involved. These weren't hardened criminals. On the other hand, they did some terrible things to innocent people. Is there anything that stuck out to you as particularly sad or painful from the victim stories? Just the amount of money they lost and the station in life that they lost it. I mean, a lot of people... You know, the typical American dream is you work hard so you can retire and enjoy your golden years. These people were preyed upon, and a lot of times it came right after a a big loss, you know, such as the death of a spouse or a loved one. And the fact that their essentially a lot of their life savings was wiped out, and they're not in the stage of life where they could replenish that. That was really particularly heartbreaking. I mean, I've got older parents of my own, and um, I worry about them. But these weren't violent criminals. I mean, they weren't using guns or violence to rob people. They were using their intellect. When the investigation is complete, the DOJ says at least 200 people were victimized, many over 65 years old. Criminals stole at least $2.5 million from them. And so Katie and the DOJ decide to prosecute as many of the suspects as they can. Even that first woman we discussed, she'd initially thought she was in love with one of the criminals, but... Ultimately, she chose to get in on the crime. She was indicted and she eventually pled guilty and was prosecuted. She was definitely a harder case because this was an older individual. But, you know, at a certain point when people are involved in this, like she had initially thought she was in a relationship with someone. She then realized she wasn't and she still kept laundering money. And it's, you know, that's a very difficult call to make whether this person should be prosecuted or not. But based on the facts of the case, we felt that, you know, she should be held accountable for her actions because her actions hurt a lot of people throughout the country. That's the second story I've heard this week about someone who, you know, perhaps got involved um, innocently 
uh, you know, as a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over time, even after being made aware that they were participating in a crime, kept doing that and then faced prosecution. Is that, is that something you've seen before? It, it is. Unfortunately, I, w- I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not, it's not as uncommon as it should be, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to know whether a person was you know, initially a victim and then joined the criminal enterprise or was just in on the crime all along. Which one was this, do you think? So for her case, you know, she had started and she she actually never really sent the fraud ring her own personal money. So she was always, you know, she thought she was just initially she thought she was doing a favor for the person she thought was her boyfriend. Mm. She's then told by multiple different people. You're you know, you're involved in a fraud with a fraud group like stop this, stop moving this money, stop sharing your bank information, stop doing this. And she's told repeatedly, and she had multiple bank accounts closed, and she just would not stop. That's that's really sad, actually. It it, it is incredibly sad. Within just a few months, all but one of the suspects plead guilty to various crimes. Their sentences vary. Patricia Dudding, the woman who started the case, was sentenced to three months in prison, followed by three years supervised release, and ordered to pay $1.8 million in restitution. John Nassi received five years probation and ordered to pay $40,000 after admitting he received $148,000 he knew were criminal proceeds. Kenneth Ogudu, also known as Kenneth Lee, was sentenced to two years and two months in prison, three years supervised release, and ordered to pay $324,000 in restitution. One went to trial. It was this past summer, and it lasted about a week. And as you mentioned, lots of papers, lots of details, right? Yes, there was a lot of bank records. Several victims testified in trial. It was very emotional. And, you know, he he also testified himself. So that was something. I think one of them just, he had recently lost his wife. Because these scams really prey on very vulnerable people. Not only are they often older, but, you know, they're going through something in life. And, like, that's why sometimes they're so lonely that they get attached to these people. Mm-hmm. And we were just asking routine questions. And then you could just start seeing him start to tear up. And, it, you know, it was just really sad watching that intro. According to the DOJ, this suspect, Abdul Anusa, used false personas to induce victims into believing they were in a romantic relationship or a friendship or a business relationship. One of these false personas, Rama, persuaded an Alabama resident to provide $106,000 via wire transfers and cashier's checks. Another false persona, Grace, persuaded a Washington resident to wire funds so Grace could maintain her South African cocoa plantation and move to the United States to marry the victim. Other victims of the false personas included residents of Ohio and Florida. Ultimately, the jury finds Anusa guilty of receipt of stolen money, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and two counts of wire fraud. The son of a former lawmaker in Ghana, Anusa faces up to 50 years in prison. As of this recording, he's not been sentenced yet. So what did it feel like when you got uh, convictions in this case? It was a good feeling. It can be hard. Being a white-collar prosecutor definitely comes with its own set of challenges because you work so hard on these cases. They're so hard to put together. 
if you go to trial, it's really hard just because there's so many documents, so many witnesses, and then you get to sentencing. And a lot of times, you know, for some of the reasons that we talked about, like these people are very sympathetic. They don't really have a criminal history. Like they just don't get very long jail sentences. Mm. You know, that's just a fact of life, unfortunately. And that, that can be hard, but then you have to remind yourself, you know, you're doing this really for not even the greater good, but to hold people accountable and all that. But, you know, to at least make a mark that like, as part of a society, like you just can't do this. This is wrong. But the case is not completely satisfying. Not really. I mean, I like I said, I think the case, I wish we could have gone farther. You know, I wish we had ways of getting, I mean, we got a lot of the, the criminals involved, don't get me wrong, but I wish we could have taken a step further and go back and cross international borders to get the people who were probably getting the bulk of the money. Unfortunately, that's very difficult, but it's something we're going to stay very vigilant in. And in fact, one of the defendants in the case, Kenneth Ameni, who Williams described as the linchpin of their case, is actually doing things to help victims now. That's partly why his sentence is one year and one day, even though he initially faced up to 20 years. I will say, though, that Mr. Emini, he, you know, he has the largest loss amount and he was, I would say, at the head of the group here. He has provided, you know, really extraordinary cooperation. Hmm. He sat down with, or besides just typical cooperations that defendants provide in these cases, but he's also, he's talked to one of our victims, um, was in the process of being re-victimized again by another fraud ring. So we set up a time where he could talk to her daughter to tell her things to look out for and to try with the goal that her daughter could help her mom not to be re-victimized. Wow. Yeah, he really has gone above and beyond. He's appeared with groups, local groups, a group of bankers to tell them things to look for, you know, when they see certain financial transactions that these transactions are indicative of fraud. I believe he's going to appear in one of our videos that we post on our website, the elder prevention fraud videos, say, I was one of these people, here's what to look for. So I, you know, I really commend him for doing good things with his life after his conviction. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a twist I wasn't expecting. So he's, um, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to have him call people who are in the middle of victims who are in the middle of a crime and say, I used to do this. That must be really powerful. Yes, that, that's what we would think. And unfortunately, the victim herself did not want to talk to him. But I think the fact that her daughter did was very helpful just to, you know, give her daughter even more things to tell her mother, like, no, this isn't right. You know, this is what you should look for and just be aware. Katie and William are still hoping to recover more funds for victims and still hoping to find others behind the crime. But this story shows these kinds of crimes are worth prosecuting. So that this investigation, in some sense, is ongoing. Um, in some sense. As far as you know, all everyone that you pursued in the U.S. has been indicted, right? Yeah, I guess I would say that. You know, there's always other spinoff investigations, but sure, right sure. now, other people are located overseas. And you are doing other things, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if there's a cell of operators at a local college nearby, that that's a case worth pursuing, right? That that's certainly the attitude that our office has taken. And, you know, there's other people obviously involved that it is hard to pursue because they're not located in the United States. But I at least think if you pursue the people that you can pursue, hopefully 
that makes an impact because these people, once they get convicted or plead guilty, you know, they also have restitution obligations and need to pay the victims back, which is something that's important. But also hopefully it deters other people from doing this in the future that they can see like, oh, you know, these people were prosecuted. These people might have to go to jail. I don't want to do that. Even if I can make some money off that, it's just not worth the risk. Like, I don't want to be involved in this. And hopefully that puts a dent in these fraud schemes. It can be so frustrating to prosecute because, and I know a lot of law enforcement agencies don't because, you know, perpetrators aren't here, but there are people here that are involved. And I think their prosecution is important and it is important to try to get restitution back, even if it's, you know, not successful for the government at first to keep at it. Well, I thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, and somehow or another, I can tell, despite being a prosecutor, investigator, you're also very kind. So I hope you are able to hang on to that through your career. It's a tough career. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. That's very nice to hear. What should people who are listening to this story learn from it, do you think? You know, just be careful online. And really, if you have a relative, a parent, a friend, or someone that thinks that they met or started a relationship online. And I know that online dating is certainly a thing. I even met my fiance from an online dating website, <laughs> but if it doesn't feel normal, if they're not meeting in person, if they can't even FaceTime with this person, you know, you should ask questions and be involved and try to educate them, even though maybe your parent or friend really doesn't want to be educated so that they know that these frauds exist and that they're out there. William also has strong feelings about what he wants people to know. And there's a really, and one of the reasons, you know, I'm agreeing to do this is I want to make the public aware of it, to be watching only out for it, not only in their towns, but also in their family. Notice if there's any um, changes. I want people to, to be aware of what's going on in your family, to be aware if an older person in your family is all of a sudden spending a lot of times on the computer, on the internet, on social media, talking to someone they don't know in real life. Also be aware if you are that person who is spending a lot of time and Someone in your family approaches you. Are you sure this person is real? Are you sure? Why are you sending money to this person? Listen to them. You've got to ask yourself is why no one ever wants to do a live video chat. One thing we learned in COVID is everybody in the world can do video chats now. If the person keeps coming up with excuses as why they can't be do a video chat, that should stand up a red flag. Another thing that should send up a red flag if the person is saying they live, you know, an hour away. Ask how come they've not asked to meet in person. One big, two big things I want people to take away. If someone is asking you to send them money and they're asking you to send money by uh, gift cards, like you go purchase uh, like at a convenience store at a grocery store or to use Bitcoin or, or another um, type of cryptocurrency like that to make the transfer, that raises huge red flag. And they should be concerned because the reason they are asking the money be transferred in those ways is because that money is almost, I don't want to say impossible because there are ways for us to trace it, but it's very difficult for us to trace. And if a person had a legitimate need for the money, they don't need an eBay gift card. They don't need cryptocurrency. They need money. Now, some of the transfers did happen with you know actual bank transfers, but those are red flags to look at. And is there anything else that you might notice uh, for in family members, for example, even without looking at their bank accounts? Look at changes in behavior. Look, if they start talking about Bob and nobody knows who Bob is or never met a Bob, 
you know, ask questions. Don't be afraid. You know, no one wants to ask those hard questions, especially after one of their parents died of the other parent. You know, what's going on here? But there's a lot of people that will target people like that. So you've got to pay attention to that. You know, simple changes in behavior, simple staying up all night to talk on the Internet, things of that nature. Pay attention to and ask why. And some of it could be great. My dad died last year. Mom, my mother, has reconnected with some of her friends from college and other relatives through Facebook, which I think is a great thing, not here downing social media. But you got to pay attention to it and make sure they're not making these new connections of personas that don't really exist. In the end, the Huntington story is about a group of students who came from someplace overseas and used that situation for financial gain, either just to line their own pockets or, in some cases, to satisfy criminal gangs back home. And they did. They made substantial amounts of money at it. And it was, I mean, it was easy money. Like I said, you know, I go to a bank account, I open it, I share my bank account information with people, and there's, I don't pay attention to the transfers, but I have a larger balance at the end of the month. And, yeah. But I wonder if people who are listening to this from anywhere else in America might think, I'm really surprised something like this could happen in West Virginia. I wonder if you could just talk for another moment about, you know, why West, why it could be anywhere in America this could happen. Well, number one, this case did happen in other parts of America. It can happen anywhere. There are lonely people everywhere in this country. There are people who are sociable who might not necessarily be lonely. It can happen anywhere with anyone. We actually had some younger victims who were part of this. It happens. I still believe in the good of human nature. And when people ask for help, I think most people want to help them. And people like this, no matter if you live in West Virginia, California, Ohio, Indiana, wherever it might be, people are good for the most part. And they're going to get preyed upon by these people. And because of the goodness in their heart, they're going to start sending them money, and unfortunately, they're going to lose a substantial portion of their savings. Do you ever sit back and say, like, wow, I can't believe all these people were doing this, you know, right here in Huntington, West Virginia? Unfortunately, no, because there's a lot of it that goes on. There's a lot of, and it's not just romance scams. There's a lot of internet scams. There's a lot of banking scams. That's been a pretty wide, eye-opening experience for me coming into this position, just how prevalent it was. I want listeners to know that this could be happening in their town as well, that they're, you know, and this is a thing to keep your eye out for, right? My guess is it probably is. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. Thank you to our team of scam busters, associate producer Annalie Embry, researcher Sarah Binney, executive producer Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer, Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>